0: A space is very international. One of the things that I learned especially in China because in China what I studied at Behan University it has a lot of international students and I remember I liked a lot playing soccer. I played a lot with people you know from Nigeria, from Kazakhstan, from a lot of countries that you know I wasn't really familiar and I made a lot of good friends and what I realized is that essentially we all want the same things. We just want to be happy. We just want to try to progress in life, you know, have a good time. And that was really humbling for me to really learn from other cultures and and essentially keep my eyes uh, open. Sometimes we tend to think that, you know, the way you do things is the best, but it's only when you really start to see people doing things differently that you learn uh, these things. So, so I think... It makes us better. It makes us stronger having more diversity. It shows in the trajectory in every in every metric. Being more diverse has helped us.
1: That was Arno, a literal rocket scientist who did his PhD in Rocket Fuel at Purdue. Arno is the chair of the Space Generation Advisory Council, a nonprofit that represents the voice of the youth in the space industry. Tune in to hear him talk about the ethics of space travel, what he learned from traveling the world, and his thoughts on the future of the final frontier. You are now listening to the Next Iteration Podcast with your hosts Fuad and Damien. If you like the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeny, and music by Wonderly Music. We hope you enjoy the episode.
2: Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So- Arno, we, uh, we will probably run out of time before we run out of things to talk about because you've done a lot, you've been a lot of places, and both Fwad and I are huge nerds about space. So we're looking to fully explore that uh, in this conversation today. So before we dive into what you're doing right now, let's kind of start up at the top. And could you just give us a bit of a bra- background into uh, your journey from your undergrad to your PhD? and how you kind of narrowed your focus as you were going through that.
0: Right. Absolutely. So actually um, my my path has not been a very straight line. That's what I thought. Uh, So for all the youngsters out there, don't worry. Like if you deviate, like you will finally be able like to get back on track of what you wanted uh, initially. So I always wanted to be an aerospace engineer. So I essentially, when I was a kid, you know, I wanted to be an astronaut like everyone else, <laughs> right? And I said, "What do they? Um, what do lots of astronauts have in common?" Many are engineers, aerospace engineers. And I said, "Okay, I want to do that. Like, I want to, you know, build spacecraft and rockets and all these things." So I did aerospace mm-hmm. engineering uh, in Spain. So I did my bachelor and masters, and and I finished in 2012 but by then uh you know there was a, like a very tough economic crisis in spain going on so the, the unemployment was like uh rate was very high especially for young people so mm-hmm. the job market was really really bad so essentially you know me and my then girlfriend now wife um you know we were thinking okay what should we do now because like if we just go straight to the job market we're going to you know uh suffer a bit right so Mm -hmm. we had a lot of uh friends of ours that were going all around europe like maybe i think three quarters of my class like really emigrated and went to other places like england germany france and so on and and with my my girlfriend then we said let's do something different right and there was this opportunity that popped up like hey there's a scholarship here to go to china and study wow. aerospace engineering in China, like in Beijing. And I said, wow, right, that, that, that's awesome, right? That, that's such an opportunity. And, and I said, we're going to be different uh, than everyone else, right? In my, in my bachelor and, and, and master's in Spain, you know, I, I did uh, a lot of UABs. Um, I built... Tested, uh, flow flew, and even crashed uh, many UABs. One of them <laughs> just was just a casual uh, sol- thing
1: you did in undergrad. That yeah, was just, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the no, side. <laughs>
0: and, right? No, no, no. I essentially, I, I, together with a friend of mine, I found, I founded a, uh, um, a team for developing UABs, and we went wow. to competitions and so on. And so cool. our last project was a solar power UAB, and it was really cool. Like because we flew it like for six hours. Essentially, we took a glider we put like solar cells like a energy management system we packed it with batteries and we flew it like for 6 hours right but after that you know i wanted to really get into like space and 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 then so i did my my thesis on on solid rocket motors it was more simulation and stuff and that got me into this world and then when when i moved to china together with my, my girlfriend and when we were doing uh, our masters my master was in Aerospace propulsion. And I was working uh, on hybrid rockets, which is this combination between solid and liquid. Uh, so it's essentially like the like the Virgin Galactic. That's a hybrid rocket, mm. right? Mm. So it's using nitrous oxide and, and paraffin as, as a solid fuel. So essentially you have a solid fuel, then you get uh, liquid, um, a liquid propellant, and then uh, they, um, they combust, and that's normally that, that's good for small uh, launchers, and, and it's supposed to be safe, uh, safer and easier, right? Because it's it's less prone to failure. So what I was doing uh, in China, like for three years, like in my masters, I I started you know uh, designing new designs for hybrid rockets, and I was te- and I tested them. And in my research group, like everyone was Chinese except myself, so it was quite a learning experience. And the language, the language was not really the biggest problem. It was more the cultural aspect, like learning how to work in another environment, in another Uh, mindset with people that are very used to doing things their own way. So, uh, but it it was a great experience. Like uh, it it was really awesome. And and, um, I I was able to actually publish some of this work uh, later on, which is what brought me then to the U.S. So one o- one of the papers that I did uh, was for uh, what it's called the Joint Propulsion Conference of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, and that was my first time in the U.S. So essentially, I went from China to present a paper to the U.S. like eight-day trip, and then what I saw was amazing. I saw like all these people talking about rockets and NASA and. And, and all these companies, and it was amazing. And, you know, uh, w- when I was in my undergrad, like, I swear, I will never do a PhD. Like, I swear <laughs> to God, like, that's not going to happen. That's me remember <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. No, no. So uh, a friend of mine, he actually, uh, right when we finished our undergrad, he said, hey, I'm going to go straight to a PhD. And I said, you're dumb. You're dumb. Like, why are you doing <laughs> this to yourself? Like, you, you shouldn't do that, right? Uh, little did I know that I would eat all these words uh, <laughs> later no. later on, right? Uh, again, the theme of, you know, the straight line versus, you know, like doing the course. So um, embrace embrace the course in life. So, so then I did my presentation. And so when I started to see these people and all these people doing presentations, they had PhDs. And they were working on amazing stuff. And I said, okay, I have to do this. I have to do this PhD. It took a lot of convincing my wife because like, have we not studied enough that we still (laughs) have to (laughs) (laughs) to be more time? (laughs) And that's essentially, and then, you know, started applying for for, uh, like getting a PhD in the US. I I got a fellowship uh, Mm. and then both my wife and I, we came at Purdue University, which is an awesome school like a lot of tradition in aerospace. I think it has the large, biggest number of astronauts. Uh, essentially, the School of Aeronautics is called Neil Armstrong, School of Aeronautics and Astronautics, right? Because wow. he he did his undergrad there. And, and it was awesome and it was uh, humbling and I learned a lot and, and I was doing mostly simulations, but I, I got my hands uh, hands dirty, like doing uh, some actual you know, tests of uh, te- rocket findings. So uh-huh. that, that's what brought me there.
2: Yes, I love the uh, Sorry, the thing ahead. that started, like just the, the idea of let's do something different. I love that yes. so much. And like I love that is what drove your decision making. Because I mean, uh, Fwad and I have kind of talked about this before on the podcast. But I mean, things like that just make for a more interesting story at the end of the day. You could have just stayed back home and just kept doing whatever you were doing at the time, right? And you'd be at a very different place now. And you probably wouldn't have ended up doing that PhD even maybe. Right, right. Right. So it's really cool that uh it's seeing the effects of that one little choice, seeing all the downstream effects that it's had on your life. So uh I both so what and I were trying to tackle the uh the most recent publication that you made. And uh we were trying to wrap our heads around it, but there was some big words in there. It was a little tough to kind to <laughs> of grapple with right, there. right, right, right. And uh we were just hoping uh we were hoping you could give us a bit of like an uh uh, Eli five. So explain it like a five version of that paper right. and of your research.
0: Right, right. So essentially what I've been doing in in my research at Purdue, I, I recently finalized my, my PhD and I graduated. Finally. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Congratulations. um, Thank you, thank you. Uh, Yeah, no, I can breathe again. Uh, I'm a a new man now. No, but um, (laughs) what I was doing was um, studying combustion instabilities. So what happens in rockets is that essentially you have a closed space and you have high pressure, high temperature, and you're trying to burn something as hot and as much pressure as possible. Mm -hmm. And that is a recipe because it's a closed environment. It's a recipe for acoustics, right? So you're gonna have pressure fluctuations. Mm -hmm. So essentially it's like, you know, your guitar, there's a resonance chamber, Mm -hmm. right? The acoustic waves will be back and forth, bouncing back and forth. Um, And that can combine with the propellant feet and with the combustion dynamics and reinforce itself. So for instance, when they were building the Apollo program, like the Saturn V rockets, the five rockets, the the Saturn V, uh, the main stage, uh, the F1 engine, they had to build 1,000 full-scale engines, test them, and many of them blew up because essentially they really didn't know how to tame this beast. And that Mm -hmm. was combustion instabilities. It can really lead to, um, to failure and to explosion. So that's a very complex problem. Um, and what I was doing is, and that's one of the things of the PAG, right? You have a big problem, and then you just pick like this is small thing here mm-hmm. to just try to make a dent into a very specific problem. So I went, okay, this is a very complex problem. I'm going to break it down into a smaller, simpler problems. And one of the problems, and, 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 and that's kind of the outcome of this uh, paper that I published, is essentially looking at the fundamental level. If you add heat. Uh, to a volume, what happens? How does this volume expand? So essentially, think about when you have propellant burning, how does it expand? How, how does it really build pressure? And, and how is does that process work? And if you understand that fundamental process, you can better understand the combustion that is very messy and very complicated. You have turbulence, you have uh, hydrodynamics, you have uh, acoustics and all these effects that you don't know to distinguish cause and effect so if you break it down into smaller, simpler problems you can get some insight so that's in a nutshell well, what that research is about wow okay i'm
1: i'm glad you you, you stay true to the explain like i'm five because i'm i literally have the mind of a five-year-old so and i was still <laughs> able to understand that so you did a great job um what i'm getting from that though is you know you started from a you started from a place of wanting to be an astronaut, right? And you're building UAVs. Right. So you're more so on the engineering side. And then, you know, you've done your sit-in research, right? So what's next for you? Like, do you still want to be an astronaut one day? Or Oh, yeah. Um, how Absolutely. is that?
0: Yeah? Absolutely. Of course. <laughs> of course. You know, uh, one of the things that, you know, when I was doing my undergrad, um, so during one summer, so I, I, I worked as, as a waiter uh, in a restaurant. Um, and essentially, I earned enough money to actually pay for flight lessons for um, glider um, uh, planes, so essentially like airplanes, you know, without without engine, which is really cool. It's like you're towed with another engine and then they release you mid-air. And then you try to get like these upward currents and fly, stay afloat as, as much as possible. And that was kind of part of this process. I I always have loved to fly now because of a lot of, uh, you know, life, right? I haven't been able to fly as much as possible. I still keep keep this, uh, you know, flame alive. And and I kind of, with the experience I'm gaining, I'm kind of still getting into, you know, there are still curves, you know, you but you think that there's a straight path to being an astronaut or, or whatever you want to do. But I liked a lot um, Chris Hatfield, like this Canadian astronaut, he said, you know, you can aim for that. You can aim for being an astronaut, but if you don't aim, like, just do something that's fun for you. That, do something that is fulfilling. Get as close as possible to that. Contribute to that, right? And, and that's part of, you know, the PhD and everything. So, in a very small uh, fraction, you know, what I'm doing is trying to help out towards humanity's, uh, you know, progress in space, right? So, And everything that gets me closer to that, you know, it's something that's fulfilling right now. So after my PhD, I, well, right before the PhD, I did an internship in NATO. So again, another turn uh, here in in Norfolk in Virginia. And now I'm working uh, full-time as a civilian, uh, you know, exploring new technologies and all of this. So again, another life curve, you know, learning more, I'm getting into, you know, um, new topics, AI, all these things. So, I just keep enjoying like learning and doing more things um mm-hmm. so the message again is embrace the curves, you know it will sort out
2: yeah, there's no need to <clears throat> there's no need to force everything along. just ride those waves as they come, and again, like it will make for the more interesting story. you'll meet more people, you'll learn more about yourself along the way as well. um I'm just curious, is considering your you know passion for eventually becoming an astronaut is there anybody that is either like a current candidate or um has previously been an astronaut that you really look up to you mentioned chris hadfield but anybody else
0: yes yes uh chris hadfield uh he's um he was such a good communicator right uh you know we what have mark musician. kelly exactly oh, yeah. you have mark kelly you know he did uh, the one a year mission and, and you know I really admire all all of them. Um, Mm. But essentially, to me, my hero is actually not an astronaut. It's an explorer. Is Ernst Shackleton. Um, So Mm. at the beginning of of the uh, 20th century, uh, the only barrier, like only frontier left to discover was Antarctica. And Mm. and so there were like three big um, explorers that were doing. There there was uh, Scott. There was Amundsen, who was a Norwegian, uh, and eventually, you know, got into the South Pole. Uh, Scott, unfortunately, died uh, along the way. But then there was Shackleton. And if you read the history of Ernst Shackleton, it's amazing. He tried to cross Atlantic, like the Antarctica, with a boat through the middle. Like the boat broke. It was called Endurance. And then uh, they had to make a voyage of a thousand miles to get back, um, and it really talks about perseverance. So this guy never made his objective, but this guy is a legend. And this guy, you know, it, it really it's a, it's a, an example of leadership. And that's really kind of to me the highest aspiration, the highest. You know, you may not always like get the prize, but you know the the journey, what you've done uh, along the way. You know, the partners, the colleagues, um, and, and what you've learned and what you've accomplished.
2: Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, also, no. I noticed a lot of similarities with these, uh, with some of those adjectives you're using and some certain Rover names that uh, we've seen in the past too. <laughs> cool. Right, right,
1: right. Um, cool, so like on this theme of perseverance, and yeah, no, no pun intended, obviously. Um, right. right. <laughs> what, like, what are you doing to, I guess, best set yourself up for the next step in your career? Cause I think a lot of people, and this is like something I've tried to make a habit of is a lot of times you see people who are doing super, super cool things, right. Super cool things that you would love to do one day, you know, doing your PhD, like working on groundbreaking research, right. Working at NATO. Uh, but you, you always ask them like, oh, how did you get there? But you forget that, you know, people at the time don't always, don't always know what's going to happen next. Right. Hindsight is twenty twenty. But looking forward, everything's a mess always, right? So, I mean, at least for me, maybe not for you, but at least for me. Um, for so me what too. are some of the steps you're taking to so kind of like get to your ultimate goal of being an astronaut right now?
0: Yeah. Um, so, so essentially, um, it, this, this is a, a funny one, um, but I'm running. So essentially, you know, I, I got to, you know, my, my 30th birthday. And I started to see that I was kind of started to gain a little bit of weight, that I was not really fit. And I said, hey, you know, I'm going to, you know, and I started getting back to running. And the funny thing is like, I started running uh, in a very primitive way, essentially go all out when I would go running. Uh, And then, you know, my times would go down until I plateau. And I got very frustrated because like, why am I not getting better? Like if I'm really putting everything in it. And then I started to read the science behind it that you, to run better, you have to run slower. So what I'm going in here is um, one of the things that, and not only for being an astronaut, I think for, you know, like, like for yourself to get, you know, good fitness or or everything. um, It's good, you know, doing some kind of physical activity, whatever it is you like. I think that's really helpful. It really helps. And I think, you know, in time of COVID and, you know, everyone needs to, you know, release uh, some steam and and so on. But the things I'm trying to learn to to do is, you know, doing sport, being as fit as possible, because essentially you will need that. Um, But also trying to learn new things, not stop learning. Um, You know, when I finished uh, the the PhD, the, the funny thing is, um, you then look at the job market and so on, and you, th- you would think, oh, you already know a lot of things. But maybe what you know is not exactly what companies are looking for. And you say, okay, after having studied master's and all these things and postgraduate, do I really have to study more and do more stuff? The answer is yes. You, you, you should not stop. And, and one of the things, and I'm sure you guys uh, do it a lot, but I would really recommend for, for everyone, like Coursera. And things like that these kind of courses oh, yeah. you know i did one on on machine learning deep learning these things this was completely new to me but and that's how i really got my job in nato right because I, I started educating myself in other areas so never stop learning read uh try to continuously learn new things and and you know like keep fit as as you know this helps you in your mind uh, there's this Latin sentence that, that I like a lot. It's called "Mens sana in corpore sano," which means you're you have a healthy mind in a healthy body." Right. So that that's kind of a couple of things that that I'm I'm trying to do. You know, again, I'm I'm joining the right. You know, I if you ask me where will you be in five years, I wish I knew. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but at this point, I completely give up in trying to make predictions because I said. I'm not going to do a PhD and here I am and, and other things. So, but, but enjoy the ride.
1: Yeah. Where you're going to be in five years is space. So, you know, that's, that's a given. So, (laughs) well, (laughs) I mean, that's the goal, right? But yes, like I, I totally, I totally empathize with, I'm a runner as well. Actually, I want to run this morning you know, second, third run of the season because in Canada, you know, we have ice for half the year and we can't run right, right, or right, right, I can't right. run. Maybe some people can't, but I don't, I don't run to the ice. I'm not trying to die. Um, and so, yeah, I, what stood out to me is is you're basically saying work smarter, not harder. Right. So yes. with running, like what you're doing is you can't push yourself a hundred percent of the time and actually get better. Eventually you start plateauing and you reach like a point where of diminishing margin, marginal returns at that point. Right. Like you're not actually deriving the benefit from doing that. Um, and I think, you know, same thing with with learning and with with research, academia and all those things, right? You don't want to just get a PhD for the sake of getting a PhD. You did it because yeah. there was something you were interested in that you felt would impact the field, right? Um, and same thing with Coursera, right? Like it's not as simple as, okay, now I'll just get a PhD in machine learning, right? It's what do I need to know to, to make myself more attracted to these companies? And, and that's how you kind of, kind of game that system. Uh, and we'll go into your time in NATO because I'm actually very, very curious about um, that. But before we get to that, Um, You're actually the the co-chair of the Space Generation Advisory Council. Um, And I'd actually never heard of this before until until, I I came across your LinkedIn. So for all the people who might not know, can you explain what exactly the Space Generation Advisory Council is and what
0: kind of things you guys do? Right. So the Space Generation Advisory Council is a nonprofit organization. um, And it's an international organization uh, of students and young professionals age 18 to 35 with a passion for space, we organize events all year long. We have webinars, uh, we have congresses. Um, now with COVID, obviously, you know, we had to move online a lot of things. Um, but in years past, we normally do like three global events for up to like four hundred people. Um, we did regional events in all six regions uh, of the globe. We did over forty local events. We have fifteen thousand members uh, from one hundred and fifty countries, uh, and essentially, what we do is we provide a platform for people to learn, to network, and to grow professionally. So, one of the things that essentially, um, when I, when I was studying, you know, a, a friend of mine, uh, you know, he was a, a big fan of AGC, and I didn't know anything about that, and he said, "Hey, you have to go to this thing called Space Generation Congress." Uh, that happens right next to the International Astronautical Congress, which is a big aerospace com- uh, conference. And I said, okay, okay, I'll go. And I and I, I I went there, and I was so amazed. 150 people, like over 40 countries. There were working groups from NASA, uh, from the European Space Agency, from Lockheed Martin, from all sorts of companies, and mm-hmm. people with passion for space. Um, that wanted to just, you know, share their views and, and exchange ideas and learn and network. And and I was so amazed that essentially I went to the, the then executive director and I said, hey, mm. how can I be part of this team? Literally, I just went straight, hey, I want to be next year, I want to be organizing this thing. Uh, how, how do I do that? And then of course there was a vacancy for next year's organizing team and so on and i got the position of uh, deputy congress manager for the Space Nation congress next year in in guadalajara in, in mexico and then i was promoted to congress manager next year in adelaide australia so that got me you know to mexico to australia the uh, the year before was in jerusalem in israel And then I started meeting all these people. uh, And essentially one of the amazing things is just like, uh, I don't know if you two like live straight on the same city, uh, but but, but what happened with AGAC is that, you know, my my other co-chair, Harriet, like she's in the UK, our executive director and our operations manager are in Vienna, in Austria. And we work literally every day. I had a call with them today. And we work for months as we're talking right now with Zoom and so mm-hmm. on. And then we meet at the congresses and it's like, you know, time has not passed. Like, and we just go and enjoy uh, and have fun. Uh, so essentially what this has given me, you know, the, the PhD, it was like more the technical stuff. But one of the problems that we have as engineers is we get too technical. We're not good at ex- explaining things. Like you always see engineers mm-hmm. that they like to talk about the, their toys, but they don't know how to you know transmit this passion to people, right? <laughs> and what DGC gave me, and that's one of the things that I would really recommend to, to our audience here, is involve yourself in things that are out of your comfort zone. Involve yourself in things that will nurture your soft skills, your leadership, your management, you know, your communications, because nowadays there is no one, no one person that can solve a big problem. You need to work on a team. And if you don't know how to work on a team, it's not useful. So, and this is what will set you apart from other candidates when you go into the job market. So what HCC really gave me and has given me is this opportunity to grow, and, and I slowly, you know, went through the ranks. Now, uh, like, uh, I, I'm the, the chair and, and, you know, my term's gonna end, then, you know, someone else will be elected. Um, but, but essentially I had a few years in which I could really serve in a nonprofit and have a big impact uh, by helping the organization progress. You know, we've increased our budget for scholarships every year since I came in. We've in, uh, improved our finances, increase the number uh, of events, more team members, uh, more online events, more things. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that that's also making an impact on our community and, and getting people together.
2: Absolutely. And I, I'm, I love that you touched on some of the impact that you've already had. Um, well, now that you're kind of at the helm of the SGAC, I'm just curious as to see what kind of vision you have for what kind of future impact the SGAC might have under your direction, um, and perhaps just generally in the future, maybe just anything, any seeds you might want to sow now that well into the future can uh, can nurture.
0: Right. So w- one of the things that that uh, we started, you know, in my term is one, is an endowment fund so that we can have uh, sustainable funding in the future. That's something that um, I will leave almost finished, but, you know, my, pre- my successors will, will finish. And the thing that I'm most proud, of, I would think, is... One of the things I understood in my position as chair of AGC, that I had to identify the talent within our organization and, and get them in the right position so that they would be groomed and they would take us farther. Uh, when, when I was Congress manager and, and when, when you know we selected uh, my successor, I told him, I want you to be more successful than I. I want you to make a better Congress than I did. You know, you've learned, I've tried to you know, essentially download everything from my mind to your mind uh, and train you as best as possible. I hope that you do do better. Like, do not settle for what I reached. Go one step further. And I try to, you know, keep this mentality for everyone, lifting people up and trying to, you know, as much as possible help them grow so that everyone, you know, try, just tries to up a little bit the ante. Uh, so essentially we don't get stagnant and and, and we continue growing and continue improving. Yeah. Um, and, and the other thing is, again, we have people with so many good ideas that it's just giving them a platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, sometimes you kind of have to just get out of the way and it's like, Hey, what do you need to make this happen? Like, I'm just, I'm just going to help you. I'm not going to be micromanaging this. It's like, you know, better than anyone else how to do this. Like, what do you need? How can I help you? Make this happen. So that's that's these two things. And what I'm I'm very sure. You know, we have a really good team uh, coming. Um, uh, and my successor, I'm, I'm sure. Like well, Harit, I know her. Uh, she's my co-chair. She will be now the chair, and we will elect another co-chair um, uh, in April. Um, and I'm sure that they will do a fantastic job, mm-hmm. and that they will keep you know improving AJC. And five years from now, and that I'm sure, like if I go to an AJC event. I know that it will be better, it will be bigger uh, and more exciting than, than ever.
2: I love that the standing on the shoulders of giants, it's kind of like the cornerstone. Yes. Like it's uh, it's foundational for science, yes. of course, and I love that you're translating that into SGAC as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's sort of just like the ethos, the entire, I mean, human civilization is built on, but especially space, like, you know, like a, a person like Neil Armstrong comes back and, and Purdue names its Aerospace Academy after him, you know, like. It's that that continuous feeling of giving back. And who knows, maybe, you know, McMaster University will have um, <laughs> the first person on Mars and, and they'll come back and create, um, you know, Academy here. And it's, it's it's about giving back to that field and, and always trying to go one step further, which I think is so amazing. Um, so um, with NATO and with SGAC, you've kind of gone through a lot of, uh, you've been a part of a lot of organizations that are, are part of this like globalist mindset, right? Where... A lot of people from a ton of different backgrounds and as a world traveler yourself, you know, you've experienced that firsthand, a ton of different backgrounds are coming together to, to solve these problems, right? And space has, has almost gone in an opposite way, right? Space in the industry is, is, a, is pretty nationalistic, right? There's the ISS, but there's, you know, the U.S. trying to launch its own rockets. Now, price has become a little bit more privatized rather than, you know, government-operated um so i guess my question for you is do you think privatization was the right way to go for the space industry on the one hand you know it's done so much for innovation right with incentives and things like that spacex reducing launch costs you know almost by 100x um with reusable rockets and 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 innovations in in the rocket game um and we're putting more and more power um into these corporations rather than you know governments and and for the people, by the people, right? So what do you think of that? Do
0: you think that's an issue or do you think it was the right way to go for the space industry? I think that was the right way to go Um, because if you see the rhythm of innovation, everyone needed like a wake-up call. And SpaceX, uh, you know, was this wake-up call for everyone. And now, you know, you see in Europe and, and, you know, in China and other countries, they're trying to play catch-up. Uh, And it's going to take time until you see, you know, other countries, you know, being able to replicate what SpaceX has done. Like, they are really ahead. Um, And for a government, like, actually, now that I'm on the other side, like, on a government, like, it's actually good that you have an industry that is resilient and you have different options. Otherwise, you get um, just a few players that maybe don't really have the incentive to innovate a lot uh, and keep costs down. Um, So I think that it it was actually a really good approach. And and I talked to a lot of people in NASA, uh, thanks to, you know, AGAC, you know, they are big supporters and we have them always participate in our events. And their mindset right now is let NASA do the hard things, the exploration, the things that do not really make money uh, and let the industry, you know, be in low earth orbit, and make a business, and make it sustainable, and now move on to the moon, right? You have Artemis, you have, you know, all these investment that NASA is putting, just trying to kind of make, uh, provide kind of a, a, a ground investment there so that companies can take some risk and start to make a business and, and have a presence. Because unless you have some uh, business opportunity, like, we will just go otherwise and do the Apollo thing, which is go, uh, plant the flag, do a little bit of science, and then go back. You really need something, so some incentive, big incentive to stay. And the economy is a good thing. And one of, one of the things is, um, and, and to give you an example here in HAC, mm. uh, a few years back, space mining, that was something kind of like Star Trek futuristic, um, and and right now it's not futuristic at all there are companies that are really going for it and now especially with the moon you know there's water you know you, you can build a uh, rocket propellant fuel and things like that there's this helium-3 that you know might be interesting for for nuclear power um, and there are like some rare materials that some asteroids might have in, a, in abundance so these are things that That's the thing of innovation. When you just let innovation go, you don't know where it will go, (laughs) what what, what path it will take you. Um, And I think that the role of government in in this case is kind of providing a framework and a stability so that it's not the Wild West, right? So if there's, you know, a a way to to make businesses in the moon, that uh, those businesses can be regulated so that, you know, you don't have problems, but I think the private privatization was the right the right choice. So continuing on that that note of like privatization, then
1: um, you mentioned how not NASA is is doing more of the exploration, right? And then uh, the industry incentives are aligning such that you know the stuff that makes money, like satellites, low Earth orbit, all that, um, you know, potentially asteroid mining in the future, in the near future, um, that stuff is being handled by companies like SpaceX, you know, Blue Origin, whatever it is, right? Then I think this leads to another question, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot. How do you think of or divide power and territory in space? So this is like sort of just a general question, and I'm sure you thought about it a lot. Um, and especially with a, with such a globalist like, organization like SGAC, like, I wonder if you guys have discussions on this. But I'm very curious, like SpaceX is an American yes. company. NASA is an American government institution. And obviously, you know there there, there's a chance that other companies will catch up but right now those are the two leaders in sort of like the space space race right so when we get to the moon when we get to mars because i don't think it's a question of if i think it's a question of when. um what happens with these resources like will it be colonialism 2.0 and we've seen 1.0 it didn't work out that well for earth right yep, um, yep, yep. so uh, yeah how do you think through those problems and like what are some
0: of your opinions on that Right, so in HGAC we we deal a lot with this uh, because HGAC uh, is a permanent observer on, in the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, that is headquartered in Vienna. So HGAC, as a permanent observer, we have every year uh, during the COPUS, uh, you know, uh, meetings, the subcommittee meetings, um, we can actually present our recommendations, and the nations can take them or not. But essentially, we voiced, it, um, we expressed the voice of the next generation of leaders. And one of the topics that is recurrent is actually what you're mentioning, which is the space law part, which is very important. You know, I am I'm not a lawyer. I'm an engineer. I really, in the past, really didn't think much of the lawyers. Little did I know it was ignorance. Uh, thanks to HJC, actually, I met a lot of space lawyers, and they... They are super like important in this part of the equation. There's one thing called the Outer Space Treaty, which essentially it states that no one can own a space, no one can own celestial bodies. You can really not own it. it that should be um, you know, for all humanity. But but it's a little bit vague, right? And there are other treaties like space treaties. There's the lunar treaty and so on, which the US like didn't sign. Uh, so, so, essentially, there are like some, there's a, a big framework, but at that time, the question of, you know, asteroid mining, lunar, uh, real estate, all these things were hypothetical. So, they really didn't go much into it, right? They, they just went for the common denominator, and, and that's about it. But now, that, that's real. We can really see, you know. 10 years from now, mining companies, actually mining resources on the moon. And then who owns that, right? Is it the country that, you know, uh, where the, like the, the company, where this company is from? Is, that the, is it the country? Is it the company? Is it the stakeholders? Um, for instance, to, to give you an example uh, for how difficult this is, right? Imagine there's a collision in a space, like two satellites hit each other right um who pays for the bill is it the country that owns the satellite is it the country where the satellite was launched it can be another country is, is it the country that manufactured you know it's there's so many components and and that's a question that is still unresolved uh the us congress uh a couple of years ago they made a law by which uh, U.S. companies could essentially um, start doing some mining and owning that, uh, that th- those resources. But again, that's been a un- unilateral thing and, and there's no international framework right now. Uh, and, and like, if you want to do some research here, and that's an interesting thing, a lot of space mining companies are headquarters in Luxembourg. Why? Because Luxembourg has said, hey, uh, we are a sovereign nation. And if someone goes to uh, you know, space and, and, and gets to mine some resource, we will validate that. We will, uh, as a country, we will validate uh, this uh, ownership claim. And so that's why you have companies in Luxembourg. Uh, you know, it's a very small country, right? Um, you know, being headquartered there because they are providing a legal framework. So essentially, um, it's a little bit the Wild West right now. Uh, and it's, a, it's, think about it like UAVs, right? UAVs, 10 years ago, there was no regulations. People could just fly UAVs like in the middle of the city and like what could police tell you, right? Like it wasn't really there was no regulation. Like could, you, and there was people like going to the airports and things like that, you know. And that was a headache uh, for air traffic controllers. But eventually, you know, governments caught up with regulations, and this is one of the things that is is essentially the same. Um, regulators are behind, you know, the innovators, and but that, that that's gonna catch up. Uh, but, but you're right, uh, and you can make a second derivative of this. They will establish a colony in Mars. Uh, what if they say, hey, we're going to become an independent nation? Like, who is there, like, yep. uh, to... Are to... they going to see that UN meetings? Like Exactly, yeah, like... right? So it's uh, it's exciting, uh, I would think.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I was just wondering, like, as you're really like, kind of going through that, too, like, even with the Outer Space Treaty, is anyone really going to enforce that, though? Like, let's no. say, like, for example, right? We had, like, the Paris uh, Paris Climate Accord. We had a bunch of countries sign on to that. And then we find out China's playing dirty again. Like, what if that happens, in like, up there in space, right? Like, they just decide to go in and, like, lay claim to the moon. Yeah.
1: Who's so, going to stop them? And funny that you mentioned China, because China actually, like, blew up a, a satellite in low Earth orbit. And it created, like, over 3,000 pieces of debris that NASA has to currently track to make sure that its satellites mm-hmm. don't get damaged. And NASA is you know, incurring the cost of tracking that and they're pro- providing that information publicly so anyone else launching knows that there's debris in this area. Right. But China is the one who caused the debris, right? So
0: it's, you know, like, how, how do you, like,
1: that's just a good example. But sorry, go ahead. That,
0: no, the tricky thing, so for this, for the anti-satellite, more countries have done that. Like, they just have done it, like, at lower orbits right? Mm -hmm. You know, India, Russia, the US, they all have done it, right? Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. and with the Outer Space Treaty, essentially, what you're assuming is that this has been ratified by the parliament, national parliaments, so they should abide by by the law. But it's a tricky thing. It also prevents from having weapons in space. Um, But what is a weapon? Like, that's another definition, right? That, that's one of the, for instance, one of the challenges, and I've talked to a lot of people, um, there's a lot of active uh, efforts right now for doing uh, debris removal, like space debris removal, right? So essentially, you can get kind of a satellite that would, you know, have an arm and hold on to like an old piece of junk that is flying uh, in space and uh, deorbit this thing. Uh, it's all good. And what about... If instead of going for like an old piece of junk, it goes for an actual satellite from another country, right? Is that a weapon? You know it, it's it's this tricky uh, that's why we have lawyers. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but um, that, that, that that's where this comes from and and that's why they're like uh, very useful. and we need we need a framework because right now it's a little bit wild west. And people need a stability and a good framework uh, for operating in a space because it's getting crowded and you know if we're not careful uh, there's this thing called the Kessler syndrome by which you know space debris you know it will have like a cascade effect and essentially you will have like mm-hmm. so much junk in low earth orbit that you will not be able to safely mm-hmm. uh, launch a satellite or anything classic tragedy of the commons right like yeah. the
1: the quintessential economic problem like there's a field trees you know people want to burn wood to give themselves warm but if everyone does it yep. there's no forest right so yep. yeah it's a, and the U.S. I think is responsible for like out of like 10,000 different tracked pieces by NASA in, in space like the U.S. Is responsible for like 6,000 of them or something like that right so you know is that indicative of population income like what is it right like who gets the right to put things into space these are all really tough questions mm-hmm. ethical questions legal questions but it's cool that you know we're we finally talking about them I think it's very yeah different.
2: So, like, I kind of did mention at the start of the episode, we would run out of time before we run out of topics. So, before we <laughs> do run out of time, because it's been an incredibly fascinating conversation so far, I just want to touch on your time at NATO uh, because, I mean, how like when do you ever get to speak to someone that's worked for NATO before, right? So, uh, <laughs> how was uh, how was your time there, and just briefly, what did you do while you were there? Right. So,
0: so, so I did an internship uh, as I was finishing finishing my my, my PhD. Uh, and I was working on a thing called like operational experimentation. Um, and, and, you know, I started working, you know, with some new technologies and getting involved in some projects. And then I really liked it a lot. You know, I wanted to try, uh, you know, it was something again, a curve for me that that was something that I wasn't used to. Like when you're doing your PhD, like in combustion disabilities, you don't really see yourself doing these things, but you know, I tried, I liked it, uh, the other thing that I liked a lot, is the environment. Uh, it's super international. It's 30 nations. So, so it's really collaborative. Um, and, and I liked it a lot. And then, you know, I was uh, fortunate that, you know, I applied for a full-time position. And I'm now, like, uh, working as a, as a civilian, working with new technologies. And as I mentioned, you know, I've been, you know, working now with uh, AI and things like that, uh, which is new to me. Uh, and, and that's an exciting thing. So I'm, you know, continuing to learn um, and getting these, you know, new skills. And the good thing here is, again, a space is very international, right? And having these skills to work with people from different cultures, different languages and different things, that's something that's going to be to your benefit. So, again, I emphasize um, when you're studying, get involved in things that, you know, are outside of your comfort zone. Uh, that, that, that's, that's super useful. And that's helped me a lot, like being in AJC and, you know, working with people from all countries really prepared me to work in NATO because it's like, Hey, you know how to deal with people from other cultures. Like we're all humans. We all have different ways of, you know, perceiving things, working and so on that, and that kind of muscle of working with other, uh, working styles and cultures really has helped me prepare, uh, and better, you know, uh, leverage, you know, this skill. Uh, while in in nato
1: so you you touched upon the theme of of being well versed in international relations right like knowing how people work from other countries how to you know work with a very diverse team um and you've kind of been everywhere you know for all these congresses um you know your undergrad you did you did some research in china now you're in the u.s uh what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned from being such a well-traveled
0: person Right. So I think um, one of the things I learned, especially in China, because in China, uh, what I studied, behind University, it has a lot of international students from all over the world. And I remember I liked a lot playing soccer, um, and I was always in the soccer teams. And um, I played a lot with uh, people, you know, from Nigeria, from Kazakhstan, from you know, all. Old- a lot of countries that, you know, I wasn't really familiar. Uh, and I made a lot of good friends like playing soccer. And what I realized is that essentially we all want the same things. Mm -hmm. We just want to be happy. We just want to try to progress in life, you know, have a good time. Um, and that was really humbling for me to really learn from other cultures and, and essentially keep my eyes, uh, open, um, to really you know learn from other cultures it, sometimes we tend to think that you know the way you do things is the best uh but it's only when you really start to see people doing things differently that you learn uh these things so, so i think that that that's given me a a, a good strength and, and that's you know diversity as you mentioned um one of the things i'm most proud of in is that we've improved year by year in diversity, like representation of countries uh, and gender diversity. Uh, for instance, when I went to my first Paris Nation congress, it was thirty-five percent female and then sixty-five uh, percent male. We've already passed fifty percent uh, females in, in many co- in, in many congresses. We in leadership positions, uh, in speakers, more females and 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 it makes us better, it makes us stronger, having more diversity, having people from different backgrounds. It shows in the trajectory in every, in every metric, being more diverse has helped us. So that, I think that's something that um, it really has hit home for me. Uh, you know, seeing these experiences has really humbled me and, and has really helped me, you know, be with an uh, open mindset uh, to, to new ideas.
2: Absolutely. And the, it, it's, there's been plenty of case studies that show that diversity really is that the crucible from which like creativity is born, right? Like by throwing together a bunch of different people from different backgrounds with different ideologies, you get beautiful ideas springing forward. And I mean, I think that's just the closest way to systematize like innovation, just get a bunch of people like that in one room just maybe get some drinks in them or something just to help loosen them up, get them to let them get to know each other a little bit better. And that everyone's just freeballing ideas. It's a beautiful thing. Um, so we're close to time. So I just want, we have two more fun questions for you just to kind of ease off the conversation a bit. Um, so I guess I'll ask the second last question then I'll give it to you Fouad to ask our favorite final question that we ask. Um, I, I'm just curious if, if I were to hand you a ticket on a spaceship so that you could go to Mars, would you take it?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah easy, I mean, eh?
0: provided there's there's a way back. I mean, so one of the things, and, and the ethical question here, uh, that's why one of the reasons why Mars One really wasn't a good idea. Um, there should be, you know, a way back. You know, when mm-hmm. uh, there was the um, discovery, like in brackets of the Americas, like it they were not discovered, right? Like, they were already there. But when they were discovered, like, um, uh, by, by the Europeans, they went back, right? So, mm-hmm. there should, like, provided that there's, um, you know, way back, you can go, you can explore. And if you want to stay, you stay, right? Um, but, you know, the, the best day in Mars is kind of a bad day in Antarctica. So, like, <laughs> the weather is not really great there, right? <laughs> That's a great way to put it. So, so, um, you know, I, I would, I would love like, oh, absolutely.
2: Yeah. I should have figured that'd be an easy question for you to answer. So let me ask one more then. just, it's cheating. I'm sorry, but got it. Are you, uh, are you, do you, do you ever get scared that an asteroid might just like hit the earth and like, that's it for us? Like the human species is GG.
0: Um, you know, and that, that's a, that's a great question. Um, it will happen eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just uh, that's just, A a statistical certainty. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's one thing that I like a lot from, and you hear this a lot with people from space sector, NASA and so on. They say dinosaurs didn't have a space program, Mm
1: -hmm. right?
0: So, but we do, right? So we have a choice. And one of the things that NASA and many uh, space agencies are working is in, you know, um, planetary protection. Like right. getting telescopes looking at words, looking at uh, because when you get these uh, asteroids that are from outside the solar system mm-hmm. with these funny orbits, uh, the the time to react is, is very short, mm-hmm. and and you know space is huge, so chances of hitting the Earth is like pretty slim, but um, we should be ready and we should be preparing uh, for this scenario because. The day we need this is not going to be like Armageddon. Like, we go, we send, you know, the thrillers yeah. and we put like a nuclear bomb and we get out. Like, it goes so fast yeah. that you wouldn't have time. Like, just like that.
2: That blows my mind that it could fly so close, such a massive object, and we wouldn't know till like maybe, I don't know, hours. One perhaps. week,
0: one week or something. Week, like, yeah. one week or something like that. Yeah. I mean, and if it's is. visible, right? But, but if mm-hmm. it's not really visible, like, you, you can get like a few days notice and, and that's it.
2: That's crazy.
0: Yeah,
1: it's insane. Uh, just a quick comment on that. I was reading a blog the other day that like crunched the numbers on it, and if you assume like a normal distribution of asteroid events over the course of human history or the Earth's history, pardon me, not human history, um, then we have nothing to worry about ish for the next ten thousand years. So for the next ten thousand years, which is like it, it's called like the golden window or something like that, there's the probability of an asteroid hitting the Earth. We, while it's non-zero, and this is all probability, so it could happen tomorrow. You know, I, I, no one take any uh, insurance claims out based on what I'm saying. <laughs> um, but the probability of it happening in the next 10,000 years is about equal to standing in a field and lightning striking you within the next, like, 30 minutes, right? So, like, yes, that's it, it's a non-zero probability, but it's not that likely. And that probability obviously increases and increases as you get closer to the, you know, normal distribution of asteroids. So we have some time. We don't have a lot of time, but like you said... The dinosaurs didn't have a space program. We do, so it's up to us to make that choice. Right. Um, Cool. Use so that brings business us- venture.
2: Yeah. the <laughs> <New> Business venture <laughs> to sell insurance plans out in case <laughs> space of space insurance the is Asher. the next sure. big field. <laughs> yeah, I hope. Uh,
1: <laughs> I hope space insurance isn't as bad as life insurance on Earth. So <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that brings us to our last question, and honestly, we'd love to have you on again because there's so much we wanted to talk about. You know, the Fermi paradox, like. Tons of more esoteric questions, but we also wanted to get to you know you kind of as a person and allow you to show your experiences. So maybe we'll have you all back on at another time. But before we let you go today, um, the question we like to ask all our guests before they, before they depart is, if you could put one message on a billboard that would reach millions, even billions of people, what message would you
0: put on that billboard and why? My message would be <clears throat> embrace the blessing in disguise. So one of the things that this curves that I mentioned, that I didn't have a straight career or or everything, all these turns have happened because of rejections or, you know, um, difficulties, crises, things like that. You know, when I I was in China, for instance, and I was applying back uh, to Europe, like doing like uh, job applications to, you know, get a job in the aerospace sector, like in Europe, I wasn't successful; didn't work out. Um, but you know, then I, I went to the U.S. I see, I saw these people, and I said, "Hey, I want to do the PhD." And because of that, those rejections, then I, you know, my life took a turn, and, and you know, I went to bigger, greater things. Uh, that you know, it was painful at the moment. You know, going through, you know, getting rejections in job applications, not being successful. Hey. is is there something wrong with me or something? Uh, You you, you question yourself. But over time, I have learned to, you know, embrace the blessing in disguise. So sometimes you will see that doors close for you, but don't get too hung up on those doors. Just get past. New opportunities will be around the corner. You know, you have to work for them. Like no one's going to come to your door. But if you keep working, if you keep redoubling your efforts, when you get rejections, when things don't work your way, good things will happen to you.
2: Thank you so much for that. I know. Honestly, I, I need, I'm so glad you said that. I needed to hear that. It's like, I'm also recruiting right now and it's just been, been a tough journey. So right. um, yeah, it's just, it's something I needed to hear as well. So again, thank you for that. And I mean, if I may share one last quote, cause we, that's one thing we love on this podcast is we love quotes. Um, it's something I mentioned before, but it's kind of like a similar message. One from Steve jobs, commence commencement address at Stanford. Uh, he shared, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking back. So trust, right. whatever it takes, trust fate, trust God, trust your gut, trust, whatever it takes just to keep moving forward and trust that it will all work out in the end. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Beautiful. As Fod said, I Cool. Oh, so yeah. Any last thoughts, Fwad?
1: No, no, no. I was just going to conclude like. That once again, like thank you so much for hopping on. Like you've given me a lot to think about, a lot of a lot of new uh, articles and PubMed uh, or uh, research papers I need to read. Um, but yeah, once again, thank you so much, Arnaud. And um, is there anywhere people can find you? Anything you'd like to promote, share? Uh, before we close off the conversation.
0: Yeah, no, just uh, I would strongly suggest like if you have a passion for space, go to spacegeneration.org uh, and really check us out. We have Facebook instagram everything uh just check us out uh you'll have a great community of passion passionate uh you know students and young professionals thank you so much guys it's been a, a huge pleasure uh and you know keep uh pumping uh you know you're super young like 22 23 that's nothing man <laughs> uh you know you have a very bright future ahead of you so
2: keep thank going Thank you so much yeah thank you
1: All so right. much yeah and I, I might have to take you up on that after um I'm definitely going to check out Space Generation and I'll hit you up with any more questions if that's yeah, okay. Absolutely. Cool. Um, thank you, Arno. If you liked the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeny, and music by Wonderly Music. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Got it. Nah, we're on the next iteration.